Coming up, do you believe in miracles? To be made a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to have four miracles. While this mother Satan, they could only prove three miracles, but the Pope, he just waved the fourth one. <laughs> just waved. Don't believe in miracles? Depend on them. Anyone who doesn't believe in miracles is not a realist. It would be a miracle if you didn't learn something from listening to Philosophy Talk. We got some Italian people, they got 40, 50, 60 miracles to their name. They can't get in just because they say there's already too many Italian saints. And if this woman comes along with three lousy miracles. I understand that two of them was card tricks. Our guest is Peter Graham from UC Riverside. Miracles. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We continue conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Philosopher's Corner is where the philosophy department is, and that's where Ken and I are both professors. Today's conversation is about miracles. Should a sane, rational person ever believe in miracles? Well, that depends on what you mean by a miracle, John. Look, the San Francisco's Giants won the World Series in 2010. By some measures, that was a miracle. Well, it had many of the hallmarks of a miracle. It was a good thing. It was unlikely. It was surprising. It was against the odds. It answered a lot of people's prayers, including mine. But it wasn't really a miracle, Ken. Not a real miracle. Real miracles involve some kind of break in the laws of nature. Something like divine intervention, or, or at least something supernatural. Yeah, I, I take your point, John. Real miracles are things like Jesus walking on water or bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Physics and biology tell us things like that just can't happen. But Jesus has these divine powers, and he can't be shackled by the laws of mere physics or mere biology. So the question we want to focus on is not whether a sane, rational person can believe in pseudo-miracles like the Giants winning the World Series, but in real miracles. Well, John, lots of people actually do believe in miracles. I mean, take people who survive cancer against all the medical odds. Uh, they sometimes regard that as a miracle, a real miracle, the kind requiring a divine intervention. Yeah, people do believe in miracles. I don't, I don't think that's going to hold our attention to try to prove or disprove that. Of course they do. They believe in all sorts of things. But should they believe in them? Does anybody really have the evidence required to accept a miracle? Okay, so what would it take to convince a reasonable person that a genuine miracle has really occurred and they ought to believe in it? Well, first they'd have to be convinced that something that was not just out of the ordinary, but really, really, really out of the ordinary had occurred. Well, that can't be quite enough, can it? Because, like, consider winning the lottery. It would be a huge, and I admit, very happy coincidence if the numbers randomly printed on my ticket by the ticket printing machine happened to match the numbers and the little balls randomly spewed out by the lottery machine. But 
that wouldn't be a miracle. I mean, that wouldn't involve a single violation of the laws of nature. No, that's true. It would involve a huge coincidence because the laws of nature working in different places, the ones in the 7-Eleven that printed out your ticket and the ones on the TV studio that spewed out the balls would have coincidentally come up with the same sequence of numbers, but every little micro of it would be a part of the laws of nature. You really shouldn't believe a miracle's happened unless you've ruled out all the non-miraculous alternatives, no matter how improbable they might be. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. Suppose I see you walking on water, just like Jesus. I look around. There are no hidden walkways lurking beneath the surface. You're not wearing inflatable shoes. You're not being supported by gossamer rope tied to a helicopter. You, you haven't learned to wiggle your toes so rapidly that you keep afloat. Well, then I've done my investigation. Shouldn't I then conclude that the laws of physics have been locally suspended and I'm witnessing a genuine miracle? In a word, no. It's more likely that you've missed some scientific alternative than that you've actually seen a miracle. As soon as you're tempted to think you've seen a miracle, you should stop and think again. I mean, it's physically possible that as I walk across the water, just as a random accident, the molecules under my feet bond extremely strongly for some obscure cause, and so I really travel along like I'm forming a traveling bridge. That's pretty completely improbable, but Jesus, isn't it still better than believing in a miracle? Well, John, maybe it's still better than believing in a miracle. I don't know, but I have to tell you something. Part of me actually yearns to believe in the possibility of miracles. Miracles inspire wonder and awe. I, I don't want to live in a universe devoid of wonder and awe. And is that all your cold-hearted scientific rationality promises me, a cold, dead universe? Well, not really. I mean, actually, the, the more science we have, the, the more miraculous, in some sense, things get, uh, like the modern Internet. So, in a way, science makes the universe more awe-inspiring, not less. I, I'm not really sure about that, John. We, we have to take that one up. But at any rate, there is certainly a lot to discuss here. Could a sane, rational person ever have a reason to believe in miracles? Can a coldly rational and scientifically minded person ever be inspired to wonder and awe? We talk about the miracle of consciousness, the miracle of childbirth, the miracle of life itself. But are any of these things really and truly miraculous? We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to talk to people who still believe in miracles, people who say they've experienced things that mere science can't explain. She files this report. This beautiful girl was deaf from birth. Oh, dear God. This is her father. And tonight, for the first time, her ear opened up. She can hear. God opened up her ears tonight. Benny Hinn is a televangelist born in Israel. He's known for his miracle crusades, where he travels the world preaching the healing power of Jesus. Will you stand and give Jesus a big shout of hallelujah? Hinn's crusades have attracted millions, but even for believers, televised miracles are a tough sell. You started to get a few charlatans coming out of the woodwork who maybe saw this as something they could cash in on. Joan Wester Anderson is a writer outside Chicago. She's written eight books on miracles. Where Angels Walk sold two million copies and became a New York Times bestseller. Anderson remembers angel hotlines where callers could talk to their guardian angels for a few minutes for a price. I was embarrassed because I was in the same business, more or less, that is bringing good news of the world to people who had forgotten about it. Anderson is a Catholic, and she says when she first started writing about miracles, she would ask people if they believed. 
and she met with a lot of skeptics. There would always be a few that rolled their eyes and thought, you know, she was... She was fine until she started all of this stuff. I could just hear them on the way home, you know, talking about me maybe needing a rubber room or something. But there were always one or two people that gave me a look that told me that they knew what I was talking about. Anderson says you don't need to be Catholic to experience a miracle. Take Amy Oscar. She was working as a journalist when she was assigned a story about miracles. At first, Oscar says she did not believe. And of course, then it started happening to me. <laughs> I mean, once that happened, once, you know, you can read all the stories you want, but when you're walking down the street and, you know, you encounter this yourself, then it's a whole new ballgame. After listening to the stories of others, Oscar says she asked for a sign. Let me know this is real. And I went to get a cup of tea in the kitchen. When I came back, there was a huge white feather sitting on my keyboard. Where did it come from? Is that a miracle? I don't know. My husband wasn't home. My children were at school. It was just me and my laptop at home. I can't explain that any other way, right? Oscar wrote a book called Sea of Miracles, and she co-authors a column on the subject for a women's magazine. Oscar says she's read thousands of letters from people who claim to have experienced miracles. Stories of people being rescued at accident scenes. I've read hundreds and hundreds of these. People who appear human offer life-saving guidance, spur-of-the-moment, instantaneous um, appearances, and then as soon as the EMS workers arrive, the person is nowhere to be seen and no one else has seen them. Like Amy Oscar, author Joan Wester Anderson has heard many stories from people claiming to experience a miracle. Like this one, a woman loses her husband and falls into a deep depression. She remembers how he used to bring her a flower every Friday after he cashed his paycheck. One day, this woman went for a walk. And she said she stopped, um, turned around on the corner, and there lying in the snow and slush was a little yellow rose. And she said she picked it up and she knew that she knew that she knew that it was from her husband. Maybe the rose fell off a delivery truck. Anderson says it doesn't matter how the rose got there, just that it did. Amy Oscar also doesn't find miracles hard to believe in, in part because she sees them all around her. Do we believe in conception? The way, you know, two seeds can come together and form something that thinks. Do we believe in a seed? A little inert, little tiny dot of matter unfolding into a tree. How do we believe in that and not believe in things like synchronicity, in things like we know someone's about to call before they call? How do we believe in one and not the other? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. Thanks, Caitlin, for reminding us that sane, thoughtful, uh, people believe in miracles, and, and their belief in miracles is very important to them. I'm John Perry. With me is Ken Taylor. We're philosophy professors from Stanford University, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. And today, we're discussing the possibility of miracles. Our guest is Peter Graham. Peter is professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. He's written a lot about testimony, including the important article, Can Testimony Generate Knowledge? Peter, welcome to Philosophy Talk. 
I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Peter, your work on testimony is about how we learn, how we can know things, not through just our own direct experience. Actually, most of what we know we don't know through direct experience, but through the testimony of others. What's the connection between your work on testimony and your thinking about miracles? Well, it turns out most of the important cases culturally about miracles come from testimonies. So if you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, and you think Jesus was the Son of God, you may do that because of the things Jesus did. He walked on water. He raised people from the dead. He fed people. He saved people and healed them, all supposedly miraculous. And we think these things actually occurred because of the reports in the Scriptures. It's because of testimony that we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Ken and I uh, made some distinctions earlier. We said, you know, there's the kind of miracle instanced by the San Francisco Giants winning the World Series. There, there's the kind of miracles, uh, the things that are awesome and, and, and like, like childbirth. But then there's the miracles that are divinely caused violations of the laws of nature. So which kind of miracles are philosophically interesting? The philosophically interesting ones are the divinely caused interventions into the orderly working of the universe, the suspension of the laws of nature by God. Those are the miracles philosophers are most interested in. And actually, if you look in the dictionary, that's the first definition you'll find of miracle. They're wonderful things. They're really unexpected. And so when we say the birth of my child was a miracle, that's close to the meaning of miracle, but it's the divinely caused ones that so we're interested why in. Are, why are philosophers interested in the divinely? I mean, you're an epistemologist. You study knowledge. Why are you, as an epistemologist, a student of the nature of knowledge, interested in divinely inspired miracles? Well, there's sort of two big topics uh, in the history of philosophy that I'm interested in. One is, what can we know about the nature of things? So how does knowledge work? Deeply puzzling. Uh, we know in a variety of different ways, through perception, through memory, through science, lots of different ways. But another big question, a huge question in philosophy is, does God exist? And what's our evidence for the existence of God? That's why I got interested in this topic. And how, just really briefly, how do they connect up knowledge and existence of God and miracles? Just really briefly. All right. So if you've got good evidence that a miracle occurred, then you've got good evidence that God intervened. So you've got good evidence that God exists. Ah, so that's good. That's really direct. So if I can believe in miracles, I can believe in God. And you know what? You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're talking about the possibility of miracles with Peter Graham from the University of California. Are miracles really possible? Real miracles really possible? Could a rational person ever believe in a miracle? Miracles, rationality, science, and all when Philosophy Talk continues. Well, should we believe in miracles? I'm John Perry. With me is Ken Taylor. We're two Stanford philosophy professors who thought that a lot of people outside the confines of academia would like to talk philosophy. And here's a bit of a miracle. We got a radio show, Philosophy Talk, this radio show, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Today's guest is Peter Graham from the University of California at Riverside. 
Peter, belief in miracles was once widespread among humans. I mean, you read about miracles in the sacred scriptures of just about every religion. Now, look, we'll get to whether people today in modern scientific cultures can ever have a reason to believe in miracles. But I want to think about those pre-scientific people for a little bit. Could they reasonably have believed in miracles? After all, I mean, they didn't have modern scientific explanations of, well, anything to fall back on. Yeah, I guess I would say no. What makes for good evidence is a kind of timeless universal standard. You've either got the good evidence or you don't. It's like gold. You've either got the gold or you don't have the gold. You could think you've got gold. It could be fool's gold. So you could think you've got good evidence. You could think you believe reasonably that a miracle occurred. But in fact, no, you didn't have good evidence for it. So it all depends upon the standards for good evidence. But when we talk about evidence, we always have what you know what the statisticians or, or the Bayesians call priors, right? I mean, you, you look at the new evidence in the light of what you already believe. And, and you, you, you've got this kind of secular view and you say, why should testimony uh, 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 in the miraculous drive away from that? But suppose you come at it with this view that this God-infused world. I mean, you think the world is created. The universe is works orderly because there is a God who planned it, created it, decided what the laws of nature should be, and decided if he wanted to have any exceptions. Now, if that's the point of view, it would be almost irrational not to believe in miracles. All right, so there, there are two questions here. One is, does God exist, and should we expect God to try to talk to us, to communicate his will to us? So many people who believe in the existence of miracles, who think we've got good evidence for miracles, that's what they think is going on. God is going to send us a message. He's going to send it through a representative, a prophet, and the evidence that the person is God's prophet is that the person performs a miracle because only God can perform miracles. It's God saying, this is my guy. Believe what he's got to say. That's one issue. Another issue just has to do with our standards of evidence when we evaluate testimony. The ordinary standards that, as a matter of fact, we all accept. You just got to think about them to see that those standards are hardly ever met when it comes to testimony well, of a miracle. Okay, so I'm a pre-scientific person. Now, the world is an amazing place to me. I have some explanations. I know if I lift heavy stuff up and let it down, it falls. I don't know why because I don't know anything about gravity. I think, okay, heavy stuff falls. But suppose I lifted something up and it floated. Right. And uh, I don't know about molecules and faster than, you know, molecules being energized and all that. I'm like, why, why wouldn't I think, oh, it's a miracle. I mean, what, what wouldn't stop me from. And if somebody tells me I saw the cup float and they seem reliable and they don't lie, why wouldn't I believe? All right. So why shouldn't yeah, I believe? Good, good question. That's a good question. Things happen all the time that we don't have explanations for. So. Any, this could happen to anybody. And a lot of people's reports of miracles or of wonderful things are just things they don't have explanations for. In fact, with a little reflection, a little investigation, a little detective work, you'll come up with possible explanations. And that's a standard we all already know. We just don't impose it on ourselves in every case. We don't suspend judgment when we know we should. You think I can settle a priori, as it were, in advance? That if I just think hard enough... I will come up with some alternative explanation that will say, no, there isn't a miracle. That sounds like you're assuming in advance that miracles aren't possible, but isn't that supposed to be kind of an empirical question? No, no. So I'm, I'm leaving open the possibility that God exists. I'm leaving open the possibility that God intervenes in the orderly operation of his creation. I'm leaving open the possibility that there are miracles and that there could be, as a matter of fact, good testimony to a miracle. The, the point of the case against the rationality belief in miracles is that given our actual standards for evaluating someone's report of a miracle, 
the actual reports that we've got in the history of human civilization don't meet up to those standards. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing the possibility of miracles with Peter Graham from the University of California at Riverside. Mark from Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. What's your comment or question? Well, I guess uh, my question or comment, that's a little of both, is that uh, when things can't be explained scientifically, I think the default reaction, and this is, I think, a part of human nature, is that there, because there is not a scientific explanation that is known, and of course scientific explanations are not static, right? We, as time progresses, we gain more and more understanding scientifically. But when we don't have a scientific explanation, we immediately, uh, I think there's a tendency, human tendency, to say, therefore, this is proof that there's a God. And, um, for example, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the, this phenomena that apparently some people truly can uh, be aware that somebody's going to phone them, or actually a more interesting example is that apparently animals, like dogs, know that their owner is coming home, and it's not that they're they hear the, the car pulling in the driveway. This is something where there might be three blocks away, and there's no rational scientific explanation for this dog being aware of the, the proximity of its owner. Mark, I'm losing and, track of what your question is. Let, yeah, yeah. Help me focus on what the question <laughs> yeah, sorry, is. I'm rambling. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess the question is, um, why is it that we, pres- we jump to the conclusion that, that God exists when we cannot scientifically... Uh, explain, uh, you know, a phenomenon that ha- has occurred and observed. Good question, and, Mark. Uh, P- good okay. question. Thanks for the question, Peter. You got a. You got. I mean, there's a propensity of us. There's something about our psyche or something that kind of wants this hungry to believe in miracles or wants to or is default believe in miracles when explanation well, stops. I, I think when you realize that God is spelled G O D and dog is spelled D O G, it all falls into place. <laughs> no. <laughs> what, 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 what is it about us that? That makes us liable to infer the miraculous. So this is this is actually a hot topic in uh, some branches of psychology of trying to explain why things happen and how humans give explanations of why things happen. I think the caller's really on to something about human nature. When we can't come up with an explanation, a kind of scientific explanation for why something happened, we attribute it to someone's agency, to a person with certain kinds of powers who's able to produce those kinds of things. That's the default explanation in our psychology. And this is, it's interesting, this goes to the issue about our evidence. Is our evidence ever good enough for these explanations? Think about when you're driving down the freeway and someone cuts you off. You think they did it on purpose. But when you did it to someone else, you think it's because of the circumstances. You couldn't see them. So we attribute what people do and events to their intentions and purposes. And so things in nature to an agent, but but you make That's it sound the evidence you make it sound like it's kind of backwards. I mean, science is a late cultural achievement of human sociality and re- and uh, and reason and culture. It's a late cultural achievement, right? I mean, human beings have been a lot, around a long time. Science hasn't been around so very long. I think it may be. I mean, it may be that you know our brains are designed f- for deep evolutionary reasons to attribute agency to everything that happens, right? And and that's, I don't know if that has survival value or something like that, but you make it sound like science is the real rationality, but science hasn't been around forever. I mean, the human mind's been around a lot longer than science. Yeah, earlier I said when you asked about uh, the ancients and their beliefs in miracles that they may have thought they had good evidence, they thought they had the gold, but in fact they don't. 
But even the ancients, in fact, everyone's got standards for the acceptance of testimony. Is the testimony good? So here's something that's true of everybody. If I report to you something extremely improbable with sort of no significance, it's not something you'd want to believe, right? There's not a miraculous thing in the sense of it was wonderful and great and something I'd hope for, but just something absolutely silly. Like there's a 300-foot Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in your backyard made of paper-thin white chocolate mm-hmm. dancing with Michelle Bachman. You would laugh at me. You wouldn't think, oh, well, of course, you're, you're a sincere person. I've trusted you in the past. That must be so. You'd think I was pulling your leg. Yeah. And that's a standard we've all got at all times. Yeah, that's but the same I mean, standard. Look- Look, suppose that some time traveler, or, or we don't need to think it's actual time traveler, just going from some place, uh, going to some island or some country that's just, you know, n- not part of the technological revolution. Uh, and, and somebody comes back, I visiting Mary, and he says, well, I saw somebody, he had this little thing on his lap, and he hit a few buttons, and, and, and five minutes later he had the complete works of Nietzsche uh, right there on that little tablet. Uh, and, and it wasn't connected to anything. It wasn't plugged into the wall. It wasn't, it, you know, there was just no no connection to anything. Uh, what do you think of that? Now, somebody who who subscribes to your your standards would would not believe that person. They would say, well, it's it's going to be more likely that this guy made this up than that that sort of thing could actually happen. I mean, when you know, I sometimes think that when I when I download the works of Nietzsche onto my uh, uh, laptop, it, it so won't your won't these supposed standards of testimony lead people astray? Wouldn't they lead people to reject science as well as to reject miracles? So, isn't there something wrong with your point of view? So, the uh, or our evidence in general, there's just something about evidence. It's fallible, right? It can point in one direction and it could be wrong. Or it could point in a different direction to be right. So you can have evidence that something wonderful happened, something like this tablet, from someone's report. There's a question, though, of how you should take it. It was it a In your culture, that's the kind of thing that never happens. You would think that they were pulling your leg. But in fact, it really could have happened. So the argument here isn't that miracles, even divine interventions, are impossible or that we couldn't have evidence for them. It's when you look at all the actual cases... The explanations are but the guy's I, probably I, deluded or but misleading. I think you're miss- or- yeah, but I think you're missing John's point. That was an iPad he was talking about or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And you're, by your line of reasoning, the primitive person, the less, the non-technological advanced person, by your standards, should not believe that that really happened. And that seems odd, right? So it seems like your, your standard of evidence is too conservative, right? It's too conservative. And if you loosen it up a bit, it might, it might just let miracles back in there because it's going to let the iPad back in there for this non-technologically <laughs> advanced person. So our, our standards of evidence are going to make it the case that at times we don't believe things that are true because the standards of evidence say don't believe it. There, the evidence isn't good enough. The evidence is fallible. That's just how it goes. But the point is, these are our standards of evidence. If you were in that culture and someone came up to you and reported such a thing like that, you'd say, oh, give me a break. That never happens. doesn't mean those things can't happen. So that's the point here. Miracles, maybe they could happen. But what's our evidence? Is it ever good enough? No. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the possibility of miracles. Dominic from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Dominic. Thank you. Hi. Good morning. So, yeah, my comment and question was about um, the logic of personalizing what happens. So, in an infinite world of possible occurrences, I mean, it's beyond computation what, you know, possible 
things could come together to get any outcome at any one moment in time. Anything that's inexplicable or highly improbable can be called a miracle. But what we call miracles tend to be the things that are miraculous in a positive sense. How about all about the, the, the terrible things that happen to people all the time? Are they also miraculous? Is there beyond explanation? And um, I suppose the theological response would have to be that um, the devil performs miracles too. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the thanks for the call, Dominic. So negative miracles, as it were. That doesn't seem negative miracles. Don't seem to be ne- negative miracles. Yeah, that's a great point. It goes to the way we use miracle now, sort of in ordinary English. We we think of something that's improbable or unlikely, something we don't have an explanation for, that has a kind of positive value for us. So that's why maybe childbirth is a miracle, or the the feather on my keyboard is a miracle. I was looking for a sign. It's got a positive value to me. And how often does that happen? But the more narrow definition that we're interested in as philosophers is whether we've got evidence that the violation of the laws of nature have occurred where it's God is the one who did it because God's the only person who could suspend the laws of nature. Well, can the devil? Can the devil? Can the devil do it? Well, maybe on the Christian conception, if he's got those kinds of powers, then he can suspend. That would be more like a Manichaean conception, right? Where good and evil constantly war. Yeah. It would still have to be a kind of nearly impossible event. So the same issues of evidence would come up. Do we really have evidence that it was the devil that caused this bus bus to crash and kill all these people? No, we don't. Well, suppose we grant, okay, Peter's right. A rational, sane person can never have uh, reason to accept a testimony in a miracle. But that raises the question, is it such a good thing to be a sane, rational person? I mean, think of, uh, I don't know, some really creative person who hears about this iPad on this on this backwards island. And, and instead of asking, do I really have reason to believe that, they open their mind and, and they say, ah, that's an extraordinary possibility. I'm going to look into that. That's where creativity and invention might come from. Isn't your kind of rational, sober, doubt everything that can be doubted? A person going to limit their horizons, and isn't that what a religious person would say about such people? That of course they're not going to believe in God. They close their mind to anything that might lead them there. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think uh, just because you're having high standards. In fact, our standards, our actual standards for when uh, a testimony is good evidence that something is true that you've got to close your mind to various kinds of possibilities. Even a scientist, even the cold, rational scientist, is going to have an open mind to a variety of possibilities, and that's where the progress of science comes from. All the evidence may point against a certain hypothesis, but you decide to pursue it because maybe the evidence that you'll discover overturns the evidence that we had that it wasn't so. Yeah, but I still think your standards are... The standard of evidence that you articulate is really conservative and is going to block that. Because if this, you know, your priors are with the things you already believe, the theories you already already have, and it's going to be hard to upset them. Your, your standards make it really hard to upset them. And John was talking about open up to things that you didn't imagine were possible. I mean, how do you get that in there? And I don't see how you quite get that in there. Yes, yeah, so what's, what's important, and maybe I haven't emphasized this strongly enough, when I've said that these standards of evidence for evaluating a testimony or our standards, think about how it works in a courtroom. You've got a controversial issue. You've got to decide which witness to believe. And maybe they're conflicting. Are they sincere? 
Are they experts on the topic? Do they have any reason to mislead? Could they be uh, deluded? And when we look at actual reports in the history of our culture of religious miracles, do they pass those tests? Uh, I see what you're saying. No, it's they don't. not a very high bar that you're subjecting them to. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about miracles with Peter Graham from the University of California, who's author of Can Testimony Generate Knowledge? If we don't believe in miracles, are we going to lose all sense of awe and wonder? Is it, is it rational to believe in miracles just so that we don't lose that sense of awe and wonder? Science and the Sense of the Miraculous, when Philosophy Talk continues. Do miracles really happen every day? Do miracles really happen at all? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Peter Graham from the University of California at Riverside. And we've got a caller on the line, Emily from Marin. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Emily. Thank you. I think one of the things that feeds into... Um, people's belief or disbelief, if you will, in miracles is their tolerance for ambiguity. Something happens, uh, it can't be explained, it can't seem to be explained uh, rationally, so the person either says, oh, well, it's, it was clearly a miracle, or, or um, well, just as one of life's many enigmas, there is an answer for it, obviously, but I uh, haven't found it, or no one else has, so I just have to... Uh, hang with it for a while. So, I think uh, tolerance for ambiguity plays a big part in uh, how people look at these issues. So thanks, thanks, Emily. So Emily's seeing a basic psychological divide between those prone to believe in miracles who can't tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty and those not prone who can. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's certainly true. Um, there are some people when they can't explain something will be like, oh, I guess we don't know why it happened. Beats me. And they're happy with that. There are other people who go from Ah, can't explain why that happened, so here's the explanation. God did it, or this person did it, or it must have happened for a reason. So they think there's always an explanation, and they may think they know what it is. Well, maybe those people are hungry for belief in miracles. Look, I said, and I'm, I'm, I meant this, you know, I, I do worry that modern science and technology has disenchanted the universe, the ancients... Our forebearers lived in a world that was infused, that they could see as objectively fused with sources of wonder and awe. I mean, does the science and your, it's irrational to believe in the miraculous, does that take that away? I don't think so, at least not for me. So think about a, an experience of wonder and awe, sort of an experience you've had yourself, like when the shiver's gone down your spine or when you've experienced a kind of joy or maybe even, you know, cried listening to, say, music, those kinds of experiences. Do you ever have those when you do a little science or you read a little science or you listen to a show on Nova? Sometimes, at least for me, that happens. I mean, the universe is 15 billion years old. There's a billion stars in our galaxy. There are billions of galaxies. That blows my mind. That's the kind of thing I experience all in I, when I think about it. I, 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 I agree. I, I love science. It does inspire me with wonder and awe, but it, it does also make me wonder if the life, if the universe is devoid of objective sources of meaning, whether the wonder and awe that I have is just my projection, right? In a miraculous world infused with God's intervention, it's not just my projecting, my liking it. 
It, the world demands wonder and awe from me. It demands reverence from me because underneath it all is this thing yeah, that's greater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you guys, I mean, I, I have one, one rock. No thoughts, no feelings, nothing. It's just a rock. Big deal. Two rocks. Big deal. Three rocks. Big deal. Why is billions and billions of rocks all of a sudden so awe-inspiring? What would be awe-inspiring is if there were some thinking being behind it all, but you're telling me that's not going to turn ne- out to be so. And I never have any reason to believe that. <laughs> there, <so. laughs> there are thinking beings within all of that, and that's the source of the under, of, and wa- I'm sorry, the wonder and awe. I'm a thinking being, and when my partner, who I'm very much in love with, demands my wonder and awe, my enchantment, he gets it, right? There's love in the universe. There's the children that we have, the people we care about, and our own experience of the universe. And the more we know about the universe and its grandeur, the kind of more awe that we've got. Uh, I, I okay. I'm not. I don't totally disagree with that. I actually, agree with a lot of what you said. But I still. Th- you, so you set up this opposition between science and belief in the miraculous. And you know, you could think that what science has done is driven out the re- reasonableness of believing in the miraculous and where it might once have been. But you think it even not once was. You know. But there's two things I want to say to you. First, science grew out of you know occult sciences and all that, alchemy, magic. Oh, that's one thing. Science grew out of that. And second thing is at the bottom of the universe anyway. When explanation stops, isn't there just the miraculousness of, you know, something existing rather than nothing? At the bottom, science stops. It can't explain why there's something rather than nothing. And so we just, ah, it's miraculous. Yeah, so that's, again, the sense of a miracle that's become very common where it's something wonderful, something cool, uh, something that matters a great deal to us, our existence and the existence of the universe that we can't explain. We don't know why it happened. That doesn't mean that we know that God created the universe or that we know that God sometimes intervened and suspends the laws of nature, their regular operation, to give us a sign that some particular guy well, not, is expressing his will I'm and not we talking, follow that person. I'm not talking about God intervening so much at, at this moment, but I'm thinking of maybe there's an original mir- miracle the creation of the universe at all. that, And then it just runs on like clockwork. But everywhere it's running on is a sign of God's miraculous creation of this thing. Why, is that so? Is that ruled out by your argument? No, that's, that's not ruled out. So this actually goes back to a point uh, John made earlier. If we knew God existed, if we had good evidence or good arguments for the existence of God, then that would be an explanation, of course, for the existence of the universe. That would be God's doing. So in a sense, anything that God does is a miracle. So there would be a miracle. And then even if we had good evidence, again, that God existed, we'd probably know that God wanted to communicate with us. So God would intervene in the universe so that some individual would perform a miracle so that we'd have evidence that that's our guy. The problem is, and this is the overall argument, even if that's true, there are lots of fakes People saying that they performed a miracle, people reporting that miracles have happened on the other side. People have figured out how to fake being the expert. And that's the problem. Even when the real guy comes up, we don't know he's the real guy. Well, even if you're convinced he's the real guy, I suppose if you had that point of view and God was always communicating with us, you might it might cease to be miraculous that God was communicating. You say, oh, God, there's God on the line again. <laughs> you know, uh, what's he going to nag us about this time? I mean, why didn't he just get it right in the first place so things wouldn't need all these miraculous interruptions that are getting boring? Uh, Ernie and Hemet's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ernie. Hey, 
how you guys doing? Okay, what's your comment or question? Um, earlier in the news section of the program, one of the people your news correspondent interviewed talked about synchronicity. And synchronicity is, we know, basic definition, humans attributing meaning to coincidences, random events. And I know this wasn't part of my question. I want you to speak on that some more, all three of you, if you could, please. And just kind of a little comment at the end of this. You guys brought up uncertainty and, and everything about, you know, physics. What do you think about entropy? And I'll take that off there. Thank yeah, you. Okay, Ernie, thanks. What do you want to address, synchronicity or entropy, or what, what do you want to address there? Uh, I guess on the on the synchronicity point, there is this, it's very, very true, the, the caller's exactly right, that we do have this tendency to attribute meaning to things that, you know, seem to matter in our lives that, for all we know, though, could have been totally random, arbitrary. So think about the feather. The feather shows up on your keyboard when you would ask for a sign. Well, a month earlier, there was a feather there that you didn't even notice because you weren't looking for a sign. And it may just be the case that there's a bird 50 yards away that occasionally loses a feather. Or it may have been that the sign wasn't the feather. For all we know, God was talking to you, and the sign was the piece of paper crumpled up underneath the table that you missed. So the, the things that we attribute significance to... Those are probably just random. It's a, it's a part of our psychology. It, when do we really have evidence that God is intervening in the orderly laws of the universe in order to send us you know, a signal? Uh, you're asking a very good question, but I really want you to step back here. I don't, I don't want to sound like a beating a dead horse, but I think the fact that we, we over-attribute significance to things, you're right, it's deep in our psychology. And it has to do with the fact that we are what I like to call meaning-mongering creatures. We monger after meaning. We want to find meaning everywhere, right? And finding meaning is part of, you know, the project of human life. Why am I here? What, am I, what is my life for? It's why we ask ourselves, what matters? What should I be up to? What should I believe? We're trying to figure out what means something. And I think we're evolved to do that. We're evolved to do that. But I think we've got this big problem. Science now teaches for centuries we went on mongering meaning and finding it here and finding it there. Now we're at this place where science says to us, you monger meaning, but there isn't any meaning out there. So, so it's like there's this huge conflict between the, kind of the thing we kind of evolutionarily designed to do and one of the cultural outgrowths of, of modernity. And I think it's a deep conflict. Am I wrong to think it's a deep conflict? Well, I, I don't think the lesson is that there's no meaning. right? It may be as you say, that we're meaning-mongerers and we're projecting meaning onto a meaningless universe. But that doesn't mean there's no meaning. The meaning is within our lives, within our experience of the universe, with our experience of each other, of our children, of our partners, of our I, lives. I, I there's agree tons that. and tons of meaning. I agree it doesn't go that. away. I agree with that. But there's some also some part of us that wants this meaning not just to be our own projection, to there's some part of us that purports to find it in things, and then we respond. Herbert Hubert Dreyfus and John Kelly have written this book, Luring Back the Gods or whatever. I can't remember the, the exact title of it, right, in which they say this is one of the big problems of modernity, that the only source of meaning we can find is now within ourselves, and that's just not good enough for us. Yeah, I, I think, think about the issue of God. A lot of people think that in order to be spiritual or to have meaning in your life, real meaning, uh, there's got to be a God, and you've got to believe in God. But we do know of many cases, maybe millions if not billions of people, 
practicing Buddhists, for example, who could be deeply spiritual, could have lots of meaning within their lives without believing in a transcendent God as the source of that value. And then you can even wonder why, if there is a transcendent God, why does that make my life meaningful? Meaning comes, you might think, really from within, from the way we live our lives, the way we experience the world, and the way we interact with others, with the people that matter to us. That's real meaning. Well, I think that's true and probably a good way to look at things from the point of view of having a happy and fulfilled life. Still, I mean, uh, you can think of meaning as, as what an event shows about the rest of the world. It has meaning if it shows something about the rest of of the world. And, and, and I think people, uh, you know, thought human existence, uh, not just my life, but the life of humans on Earth, was a really important part of the universe. It showed a lot about it. It showed that it must have been created by someone who cared and created this. And now we seem to be learning uh, that that's not so. It's a very local significance. It doesn't say much about the creation of the world, that there are humans in it. Uh, and it doesn't say much about what's happening in the universe more than a couple hundred miles uh, off the surface of the Earth. And to not suppose that that's kind of disappointing seems to me bad faith. What do you so, think? What last do you think? Well, you, let, we'll end on this note. I Tell, guess I, I'm not disappointed by it. Think of it, <laughs> think of it the other way around, right? The, the one view is that the meaning meaning comes from us doesn't make the meaning go away. The meaning still exists, but it comes from us. If we came about through random happenstance on this one little planet, on this edge of this galaxy, that meaning doesn't go away. Now, the alternative view is that the meaning is sort of out there. Well, suppose humans never came into existence. What meaning would it have for us if the universe is meaningful, but we don't exist? Would that make a difference? <laughs> well, that's Not a, at all. That's uh, a good question to ponder, Peter. And on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's been a great conversation. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Our guest has been Peter Graham. He's a professor of philosophy from the University of California at Riverside. So, John, uh, what are you thinking now? Well, you know, I, I, when I brought up the example of downloading uh, Nietzsche onto your iPad, I actually did that the other day. Now, why exactly I downloaded Nietzsche onto my iPad, you might wonder, since I have the books of Nietzsche in nice print volumes, and I must say, uh, don't read them very often. But still... It occurred to me the things we take for granted. I remember as a kid, I used to just stare at the radio. A matter of fact, even at the Victrola, as we called it then, or, or uh, you know, and you see this little thing going around, this black disc, and and then there's this needle in it, and and you can just see the needle in it, and then out of the out of the speaker are coming these sounds, and I just, I thought that was miraculous, even though I had a pretty good idea of how it worked. And I guess I have a pretty good idea of how you can sit there and just out of the clouds, uh, your iPad suddenly contains all the work of Nietzsche. But in some sense, it still is miraculous. So maybe I don't believe in miracles in the sense Peter thinks they're implausible, but I see the world as increasingly infused by miracles, most of which to take advantage of you have to have a younger, more supple mind than I do, and it's very irritating. So, well, the universe is still a place that inspires wonder and awe. And this conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is, Cogito Ergo Blogo, I think, therefore I blog. And you can also follow us on Twitter and find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page. And you can sign up to get the free weekly podcast of Philosophy Talk at our website, philosophytalk.org. 
Does Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, find the fast lane too miraculous? Let's listen. Ian Scholes, a miracle used to be defined as an event outside the laws of nature. Real miracles are kind of thin on the ground these days because some skeptical spoil sport will come along and explain them. Oh, sure, we have the occasional images of the Virgin Mary on tacos, but stack them up against the parting of the Red Sea, turning water into wine, or smiting an enemy with blindness. The supernatural really doesn't seem to be holding its own. Where are the unicorns and fairies and wizards and dragons? Now, some claim that various earthquakes, floods, and droughts are God's punishments to sinners in certain areas of the world. But that seems awfully passive-aggressive on God's part, doesn't it? Why use the laws of nature to punish us? Why not make gravity fail? Leave a couple new commandments in a burning bush. Send a horde of angels on fiery steeds. What miracles we do have aren't properly miracles at all, but marketing or wishful thinking or something unlikely. A baby born in an earthquake is a miracle baby. We have miracle whip, miracle grow, miracle fibers, miracle drugs, miracle workers, miraculous recoveries and rescues, and the Miracle Mile in Los Angeles, conveniently located near the Liberia tar pits. As for actual miracles, they don't really stand up to scrutiny, do they? There's the miracle of incomplete devastation. You know, three people are killed in a car wreck, one lives, therefore, miracle. An underdog wins a hockey game. You get a miracle on ice and a Kurt Russell movie. Gamblers, strangely enough, are today's great believers in miracles. If the roulette wheel turns up black five times in a row, a gambler will bet on red. Yet the odds haven't changed. People blow on the dice for luck or wear a lucky hat or think they're on a winning streak. Yet the odds never change. I just read that the odds of shuffling a deck of cards and then dealing them out in a particular order is one, followed by 68 zeros. In other words, getting a sequence is a lead pipe cinch, but getting that sequence, 10 to the 68th power. And yet it was dealt. It's a miracle. All of which goes to prove, world of miracles or not, your mother was right. You should never play poker with a guy named Doc. You shouldn't play poker with unicorns either. For one thing, they don't exist. For another thing, if they did exist, they'd be a lot luckier than you because their existence would be a miracle. Therefore, their poker playing skills would be awesome. They deal straight flushes every time. It only makes sense. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2011. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and from various groups at Stanford University and from the Friends of Philosophy Talk and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.